Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Erin Erickson here with my mom, Marty, and I am so thrilled to have our guest today, Shannon Gibney. She's the author and a university professor, and her novel, See No Color, drawn from her life as a transracial adoptee, was hailed by Kirkus as an exceptionally accomplished debut and by Publishers Weekly as an unflinching look at the complexities of racial identity. Her sophomore novel, Dream Country received five starred reviews and earned her a second Minnesota Book Award. She lives with her two Liberian American children in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she is joining us today to talk about her book, The Girl I Am, Was, and Never Will Be, a speculative memoir of transracial adoption. And this is just an incredible book uh, by uh, an amazingly talented writer and uh, creative an inventive individual. So we're so grateful to have you here today, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. I always um, have a wonderful time chatting with both of you. Well, we always look forward to it. We look for every reason to get you on and you give us plenty of reasons. <laughs> I have to echo what Erin said. I, I just was blown away by this book and I can't even imagine how you, you know, how you conceived it and and shaped it. And uh, I don't know, it, it's really creative. And this, of course, is a novel that's written for um, both adults and young adults, mm -hmm. teens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to, you know, find a thousand people out there to give it to because it really is so creative and it raises and and addresses in really candid, sensitive ways uh, so many issues about adoption in general and transracial adoption in particular, but I think there are things in it that that anyone can relate to. And as both a, a grandmother and somebody who's done a lot of personal looking into my own history and things I never knew about my family history uh, and how not to repeat those things going forward, um, you know, I just found a lot in the book that I really related to on a very personal level, even though I've had no experience with adoption and I, uh, or, or with, um, you know, being uh, transracial or living in a white family when you're identifying primarily as black and, you know, just all of those things. So I, I just want to emphasize that, that it shouldn't be pigeonholed um, because it's a really insightful book. So what inspired you to write this particular story about Erin and Shannon? And you can tell us as much as you want to about who those two people are, yes. uh, not the Erin who's sitting here with us yeah, doing this podcast today. Yes. Different Erin, but it's a beautiful. Different name. timeline. Yes. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah, no. And I just want to thank you for saying that, Marty. Um, you know, I, I hope that um, the book obviously resonates with adoptees, but um, you know, all good art, all good literature, um, I, I believe um, should tell us something about what it means to be human right now. Um, and so in that way, it should transcend, um, you know, the, those categories in, in um, sort of like a, a deeply emotional psychological way as you read. So I'm, I'm glad that, um, you have that experience, um, 
reading the book has been out since January and I have been hearing uh, the same thing from readers, which is so gratifying. Um, I mean, there's nothing better um, for, for a writer to hear. Um, so basically, yeah. So this um, book has two main timelines. The first timeline is quote unquote, what really happened. Uh, Shannon Gibney, um, myself growing up in 1985. So I would have been 10 um, with my white adoptive family in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then it has uh, another primary timeline, uh, which is this girl, Erin Powers, um, growing up with uh, my white birth mother, uh, Patricia, in 1985 in Utica, New York. And Erin Powers was actually the name that I was given at birth by my birth mother. I found that out when I did my birth search when I was 19. Then, because I am a big nerd, um, there is a wormhole that uh, connects uh, the two timelines. And so Shannon sees Aaron sometimes, Aaron sees Shannon sometimes. Uh, and, and when that happens, strange things start to happen. Um, uh, another sort of layer of the novel is uh, documents from my adoption um, and um, pictures such as, you know, things like pictures um, and um, letters that my birth mom sent my uh, adoptive mom through the years. Um, and then kind of the final layer would be um, short essays on the absurdities of the adoptee experience. So it's kind of a collage uh, book and um, it came, it really sort of um, came together in that way. Um, this is, you know, <laughs> writing is like everything else in life, right? Every time you do it, it's a little bit different um, because probably because you're a little bit different. Um, and so I was really thankful for this book. I wrote most of it during the pandemic. Um, and so that was a very grounding um, experience and project for me to have. I always do better um, when uh, my brain can really focus on a big project. Um, and so uh, it really just kind of came out of me. You know, people, uh, <laughs> since it's been out, are just like, how did you come up with this? Like what? And, and I'm just sort of like, um, you know, the truest and most annoying answer that I can give is I don't really know, you know, like how, it just sort of, this is what came out, um, when I, when I started, uh, working on the next big project, whenever I finish, I'm on, I'm on the way to finishing, um, a long form, uh, you know, usually novel, um, I'll start having dreams and images and stuff, uh, will come to me through my subconscious. And then it's just sort of a matter of kind of surrendering to it. Um, and, and not necessarily always, especially in the embryonic beginning stages, like not having to understand what I'm doing or what it's about, because that will then kill it. Um, and so I have a very, um, supportive editor, Andrew Carr, uh, this is our third book together. And so, um, you know, just to have somebody behind you, who's like, wow, this is really interesting and just go with it. And I totally believe that whatever this is, you can do it. Um, yeah, that makes all the difference. Wow. Well, it, it, it does have this almost otherworldly quality. And so hearing that these stories come to you in dreams and, and other ways is kind of adds to the, the, the magic of the story and just the in, incredible creativity of this approach to your story. It's just so fascinating. And I think this idea of speculative memoir, it, it just has so much power 
for so many people and in so many different ways. I mean, I can think of patients of mine that, boy, this could be so amazing if they could imagine, you know, experiencing something different in, in good or bad ways. You know, I think there's, there's power in, in both sides of that. And so it's, it's just remarkable. And then this story of, of adoption and, and, you know, literature of adoption, it's such an important, uh, it's an important body of literature and, uh, it's so important to give voice to these perspectives and you've brought such a creative and incredible voice to this. Can you talk to us a bit more around the literature of adoption? Yeah. So, um, you know, the literature of adoption, uh, literature about adoptees has uh, historically been dominated by white adoptive parents who don't identify as such. Um, so for instance, when I was growing up and I would find um, the very few uh, stories about adoptees or studies about adoption or whatever, like they just felt off. <laughs> like they just did not align with my lived experience, which was uh, really problematic because I, you already feel so isolated. I mean, adoption is such a structurally isolating experience, particularly transracial adoption, right? Which is, um, you know, when you are the only person of color in a white family. And many times in a white community, that wasn't the case for me. You know, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a you know, racially mixed um, uh, community. But um, but many of my friends, particularly Korean adoptees, they grew up in all white, uh, small uh, communities. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> in the book, I call it epistemological violence. You know, you, you don't necessarily have a word for it but you know it in your body. Like, um, I think Resma Menekin, you know, his book, you know, My Grandmother's Hands, he talks about this, like, somatic violence, right? And, and I'm a Buddhist. And so the, you know, my teacher is always like, you know, the, the first, um, the first division that we have is between our bodies and our minds, like, and, and, and that's the first chasm. And so when you, when, when you experience something, um, that's a traumatic event or then a secondary traumatic event on top of that, you feel it in your body. Um, and so that was what I, uh, certainly experienced as a child. Um, there wasn't really, um, any acknowledgement of the, um, the burden of assimilation, um, that is put on, uh, children of color in white families and white communities. Um, and with that, uh, you know, just always feeling like an imposter, right? Like just sort of like, wait, looking in the mirror and like, but I'm, I'm black <laughs> or, but I'm Korean American, but no, I'm white, you know, I'm like my family, you know? And, and so not being able to kind of perform uh, black culture, for example, not being able to speak black English for my Korean American uh, uh, transracially adopted friends, you know, um, not being able to speak Korean, um, and not belonging to a Korean church, you know, not, not um, knowing much about, uh, you know, Korean food, all these things sort of mark you um, in particular ways um, that you really don't see explored in literature adoption. And then sort of in the wider sort of, uh, I would say, public discourse about adoption. And I also go into this in the book, you know, it, it's very much like, 
oh, like if you see a story in the New York Times or something, it's usually like, oh, this upper middle class white family that, you know, really uh, wants to have uh, kids, but for whatever reason can't. And so they spend thousands of dollars, uh, you know, trying to adopt from the global South and they go through, you know, all this rigmarole and bureaucratic nonsense and all these problems. And then they finally get the baby or the, the toddler um, and, and then they make it home. And, um, and usually that's where the story ends. But if it's like a, a longer story, it's like, oh, and then the baby grows up to be, you know, this, this perfectly uh, well-adjusted uh, member of this colorblind, happy family, right? Um, and so, yeah, adoptees are not, we're not really allowed to have any complicated feelings um, about uh, our adoption um, or even sort of really identify um, as adoptees in a lot of ways. So that's what I would say about the literature of adoption. But I will also add one last thing, which is that I would say in the past, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's been um, a resurgence of, or there, there's been a lot of, a lot more cultural production by adoptees. Um, we still need to hear a lot more from birth parents. Um, but I mean, especially like this year and last year, there's a lot of books, really interesting stuff coming out that I've, I've noticed um, by adoptees um, that I'm, I'm really interested uh, to read. Later this year, um, Nicole Chung and I, who's a, another Korean adoptee, um, are releasing, we've co-edited what we believe is the first uh, collection of YA short stories about adoptees by adoptees. Um, and that's, yeah, so we're pretty excited about that. That is exciting. And uh, we'll uh, we'll want to hear as soon as that comes out because we get you back again. How about that? That would be fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Well, I wonder, um, Shannon, if you could talk a little bit about your reunion. And uh, this it really is a very important uh, aspect of your story in this current book. And what was the process like for you? about around writing that reunion over time and capturing the complexity of it and the complexity of your of your family your your birth family your extended birth family uh, there just is so much rich detail in that part of the book and uh, or that theme throughout the book really tell us more about that yeah so i think you know i'm 48 and a lot of um search and reunion stories, most of them, and right when, um, basically right at reunion, right when the birth parents and the birth mother um, meet. Um, and so, um, you know, for my book, um, I met my birth mother, uh, Patricia, when I was 19. Um, and it was a much easier process than, let's say, my friends who were internationally adopted, um, who, um, many times people have lied to them, you know, told them that this building burned down, whatever. I simply contacted my, um, agency, my adoption agency. Um, and I asked, you know, has there been an inquiry, uh, from my birth mother or my birth father? They said, yes, they gave me the information. Um, that that's not the common story. <laughs> so I was very lucky that way. Um, 
And then I, I had a, um, a therapist at that time, actually, who um, also was had some skills as a private investigator. And so then she shortly found out after that, um, that my birth, she found my birth father's death certificate and that, you know, he had died, um, as a result of injuries he sustained during a high speed police chase, um, when I was six. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I definitely had, um, I think an easier time. I, I mean, I have a lot of friends who still, they're my age and they don't, they can't find anything, um, which is a tragedy. Um, and, but the thing about it is, is like, I always say, you know, as I was going through this process of search and reunion, there were plenty of people, um, you know, who were trying to be supportive, who were like, oh my gosh, you should write this story. You should do this. And I, I just, I never wanted to do that because it just, it, it felt like it was feeding into that literature of adoption that we were just talking about in really problematic ways. Um, and so I actually never really thought that I would write about my search and reunion, you know? Um, and of course, um, so then it makes sense that I wrote it in this really weird way <laughs> um, because I really, what I'm interested in is um, how do you make sense of yourself and your life and, and also your ancestral life, right? Like your family histories, um, when there are so many holes um, in a in a culture that deeply values at least the appearance of seamless uh, personal and family narratives, like what do you do and what does that process look like? And I wanted the reader to actually experience that as well. Um, and so uh, I think you know that again, I made contact with my birth mom when I was nineteen, and then we had this complicated on again off again relationship for uh, many years after that until her death um, in, in 2014. Um, and so uh, I just, I think that's important. I think um, that um, it, it's important to see that there are these hills and valleys. It is really complicated. Um, there, and there are these knots that really kind of don't ever get untied. You know, like I, I always say, you know, giving up a child, you know, I'm a mom myself and, um, you know, we talked last time about the book I did with Kalkalia Yang and, and you know, so I, I have lost a child. I've lost a, a baby at uh, 41 and a half weeks. Um, so I know what that is like, but it's something different to give up a child and to know that that child is out in the world somewhere, you know, uh, living their life, uh, having, you know, different, uh, family, all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of trauma, that kind of loss, I think is not really explored that I've read, um, in a lot of, uh, uh of literatures. So, um, it, it was hard for me because again, I had this, <laughs> very layered and oftentimes difficult relationship with my white biological mother. Um, some of it around race and a lot of it around other things. Um, and a lot of it, I think as a result of the trauma that un unprocessed trauma that she had experienced in her life. Um, and, um, and so to see sort of how that unfolds over like a 20 year period, a 25 year period, 
Well, I'm so struck by just the complexity of the emotions kind of on every level, uh, you know, for, for everybody involved, especially as the adoptee and then as the birth mother. And I, I so appreciate that you are creating space for these voices and advocating for this and, and doing this so beautifully with your own work. I'm also curious about um, the ways in which writing this book was cathartic for you around your own experience as a transracial adoptee and as a mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think especially um, around the issue of the loss of my birth father. Um, and really, for me, that was also about um, the loss of Black culture because he was um, the, the one uh, who was holding that. Um, and so... Um, you know, I've been able, because of the choices that I've made as an adult, I've been able to, you know, recuperate um, some of those cultural losses, a lot of them actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I will never get to meet him, <laughs> you know? Um, and, but through the process of, of, of writing this book, both myself and Aaron get to meet him through art. Um, and, and I think that's significant. You know, it, it doesn't mean that all the the uh, untied ends are suddenly, you know, a nice bow and, you know, that I don't still have hurt that I'm walking around with. Um, but I guess I feel more like the hurt has its place now. You know, it, it has a place to be um, that's uh, productive and that maybe can help other people, um, in a way. And then, you know, also just, um, you know, the book also, um, tracks my experience as a mother to my now 13 year old son and my eight year old daughter. Um, and you know, there's, there's, uh, one page that has a picture of my birth father whose name is Boise and, um, a picture of me in first grade, and then a picture of my son in third grade and his name, I named him Boise too. Um, and so he is a fourth generation Boise, even though, (laughs) um, you know, that line was broken, um, in a certain way. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so, um, so I, I, I wanted to include my children because, uh, in, in the book, because they do play this healing role, you know, in terms of, um, recuperating ancestors, but going forward in a positive way, because they are helping me to do that as well. Uh, that's so fascinating. And, uh, I, I was really touched in the, in your book, uh, that you named your son after the father you never met. And, um, just, you know, so many things about that are really emotionally powerful, I think, for the reader and obviously for you. So thank you for that. I have one last question for you, Shannon, and that is, how has your experience of the book, its themes, and also your experience of mothering changed since the book came out? Yeah, so um, I always say, you know, you, you if you're lucky, you have this project um, 
that you're sort of stewing, stewing with and, and working with and, um, you know, just diving into, I guess, for years. Um, and, um, and, and in my case, and people who are lucky, you might have one other person like my editor, um, for that period, time period, but it's really just, you know, it's just very insular. And then, you know, um, when your book goes out into the world, it becomes something else. It's not yours anymore. It's like a child almost. Um, and so what happens is it's this beautiful process, um, that, you know, uh, readers and people take it in and, um, they, they make it their own, they interpret it and then they, they give it back to you, you know, um, in ways that you might not have necessarily seen. Um, and so that's been, I mean, that's always a really beautiful process, but for this book, because it's so personal, um, I think it's had just an additional resonance for me. Um, so, you know, uh, for example, uh, everything uh, we know in American culture is uh, bifurcated by race, um, including um, adoptee communities. So I, you know, I have a ton of friends who are adoptees, uh, but basically all of them are people of color. Most of them are transracial adoptees. Um, and so it's, it has been surprisingly healing for me um, that uh, white adoptees have been claiming this book as, as their own, you know, and it's been like, this is, this is the book that we've been waiting for. Um, and, and I just think, um, you know, I have some friends who are therapists as well, who have been saying like this, that this modality of deeply inhabiting, um, another reality, um, something that you, you lost, or someone that you lost um, can be, you know, it, ha it has uh, potential um, to, to be used in different ways. And, and, and um, so just seeing the ways that different readers, you know, there's also been tons of adoptees who have reached out to me and have been like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one living on two timelines. Like I, my, my life finally makes sense now. Um, and so as a writer, there's just, there's nothing more gratifying um, than those things. Yeah. Well, I, I so appreciate that perspective. I hadn't really considered all the ways that a book changes after it's out in the world and, and kind of how people digest, metabolize it and, and, and give it back to you or share their experience of reading it. And I could imagine that um, there are probably many amazing ways that plays out. And then maybe some ways that you're like, oh, I wasn't, you know, like you said, you weren't really expecting that. And, and I found as I was reading it, that I was really thinking about, boy, I could think of so many people that would benefit just from the, the method you use, the story, the, the way you told the story, the structure of it. And, um, and so it's it's such a, a valuable piece of literature for that reason, and um, I, I think this is just such a fascinating uh, kind of analogy to make, like kind of connecting this with yeah, it's like a child. You know, you you can put as much of yourself and and your values and your ideas and your beliefs in, into the raising of a child or the writing of a book, but they go out in the world and and it goes out in the world and. It, engages with people you you've never met and you can't even imagine <laughs> and and it's changed in that way so that's that's a, just another um 
kind of remarkable thing to consider. Well, I, I so uh, am so grateful you wrote this book and um, just so incredibly grateful for your time today and uh, that I, I get to uh, enjoy the uh, fruits of your immense creativity and innovation and writing. And um, we're, we're just so grateful that your voice is out there and that we could tell our audience about the work you're doing. So thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We would highly recommend that you check out Shannon Gibney's latest book, The Girl I Am, Was, and Never Will Be, A Speculative Memoir of Transracial Adoption. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Erin here with my mom, Marty, and we'll be back again next week. Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday? <laughs> <laughs>